good to be back. It's always nice to be at camp, but it's nice to be back sometimes too. After a couple of weeks, you know, you start to feel that pull to return to somewhat normal life, but then when you get there, you kind of miss it. It, it was a, a wonderful session. Of all the sessions I've worked, and I think uh, Rob Daniel, the director, and Dan would probably agree as well, uh, the best session I've been a part of uh, in terms of the attitudes and the behavior of the kids and the, the quality of the lessons. Um, Sean Neistrath, who used to preach in Lacrosse, now is in uh, Paducah, Kentucky area, uh, did our Bible lessons and did a phenomenal job. And it was a great week. And I'll echo what Dan said that the, the Monroe kids really, really did us proud. Um, it's not a competition. But we're the best, and, uh, and but no, our kids. I mean, we had what, four four of ours there, and they were always in the mix, leading whatever was going on, always demonstrating good attitudes, being helpful to others, setting an example. And I want to commend all four of our young people that were there for the way that they conducted themselves. It was really outstanding to see, and and we should be very proud of of our involvement. I will mention, uh, to add to our prayer list, um, I just found out yesterday, Deb Cleveland, uh, who's the president of the board of directors for WCYC, uh, had an accident and broke her uh, femur uh, and had to have uh, surgery to repair it. So she's, she's preparing to go to rehab uh, for the next few weeks, uh, and we want to remember the Cleveland family in our prayers as she recovers uh, from that, that injury. They were out, I think she was camping with family. Uh, when it happened, so we'll remember them. Uh, well, it's hard to remember after a couple of weeks, but we were in the middle of a series, and so I'm going to return to it um, and talk about it. And it's especially uh, timely for me because when you're around uh, large numbers of children, and particularly with WCYC, we do run across a lot of kids who, who come out of adoption and foster care or who come from difficult backgrounds that end up there for a variety of reasons. But, but it's very different from how I, the little bubble I grew up in in the Bible Belt. You know, the camp I went to, it was all, you know, I was telling Thomas, he was a little sad to leave camp yesterday. And I said, I was always sad to leave camp too. Of course, I went to school with all the kids I was at camp with. So I saw them like a few weeks later when we got back. You know, it, it, it's very different. And, and the variety of backgrounds and stories that come with this, some of these kids is very different. And we have to be mindful of that. And every now and then we run across someone who you can see it in the way they carry themselves. You can see in the way that they behave, that they come from a tough life at home. They come from a situation where there's not a lot of value placed on them. They come from a situation where they don't feel the kind of love that you and I may be accustomed to feeling in our homes. They come from a situation where they are put down. Some suffer abuse. But more often, it's in a verbal form of making someone to feel worthless. And you can see it. And if, if any of you school teachers and encounter a lot of kids, you see the ones that don't see their own value because they're not told that they're valuable. And every mistake they make, they're told that it's their fault. They're told that they're never going to amount to anything because they mess up, because they make mistakes, because they have faults. As we talk about our search for significance, our own desire to mean something in this life, 
and this pull that we have to find purpose in the world around us. And it comes from the relationship that we once had with God in the garden as, as mankind had this close and intimate relationship that was demolished by sin. And ever since then, we've been striving to get back to God. And in our striving, sometimes we distract ourselves. Sometimes we find ourselves leaning on or reaching out for the things that are not good for us or something other than the relationship with God. We try to put something else in that place and it causes damage. It leads to us not living up to our potential. We talked about the, the performance trap, about how we, we think that if we're a certain level of success that our life will have meaning and that, we, that makes us good people. We talked about the addiction to approval of others and that equation that exists, that if we have success and the approval of others, that we will be happy. But happiness and joy and satisfaction and, in fact, significance come from God. And so we are constantly in this cycle of trying to achieve more and receive more approval. And we have to talk about what happens when we fail at that. We have to talk about what happens when mistakes are made. And we have to talk about how we treat others and how we treat ourselves and how God sees us when it comes to blame. We, we play the blame game in our life. When we see those kids that live in households like that, that's what they've experienced. The blaming and the destruction of their very heart and soul because of mistakes they made. And often it's the mistakes that the parent or the, the person who's abusing has made, placing that on them, beating them down with their own faults and their own hurts. When we don't receive the uh, uh, approval of our performance, we seek blame. We seek to either blame others or to ourselves. Very often we point to ourselves. We blame ourselves for our shortcomings and our mistakes. But when possible, we try to place that blame on others. We have an inherent need to assign responsibility for mistakes. If you've ever worked in an office setting or a corporate setting, you know this very well. When mistakes are made, there's a need to assign blame, whether that's yourself or someone else. Part of the reason that we seek to blame is that we feel it shields us from sharing in the responsibility for the poor outcome. If we can point the finger quickly to someone else, maybe we won't have it pointed at us. Or if we point it at ourselves very hard, maybe others won't point it at us either. We have that need to shield ourselves and we try to exonerate ourselves by blaming others for the faults that we see. Going back to abused children, oftentimes we see in children the opposite behavior from this. Whenever a parent or an authority figure is abusing a young person, their blame often rests on themselves, and they refuse to blame the abuser when confronted with it because they need that person and they have a reliance on that person and so they don't want to see mommy or daddy or whoever go to jail or get in trouble and so it becomes very difficult when we confront abuse with young people to get them to open up about what they've experienced because they fear the blaming of people who are important to them when we need people we withhold that blame. The blame that we exercise when bad things happen falls both on ourselves and on others, as we mentioned. We have to look a little bit about how we treat other people 
and question how we treat ourselves. Very often when it comes to blaming others, we condemn others not only for sin, but even for minor mistakes. We take on sometimes in our treatment of other people a godly agency that we are somehow the hands and feet of God in exacting punishment and assigning blame for wrongdoing. And we certainly understand that sin is awful, it's worthy of condemnation, but we have not anywhere in Scripture or in our relationship with God been deputized to punish sin or failure in other people. That is never our job. Recognize it, teach about it or against it, encourage and build up, absolutely. It's fine to call sin, sin, but we have not been given the authority to exact punishment. And part of blaming others is taking on a godly agency and feeling that it is our duty to God to put that blame and punishment on people in this life. And we must be careful not to fall into that trap. Blame also has to do with how we treat ourselves. We, we punish ourselves sometimes for our mistakes and even for our sins. And perhaps it's the case that we punish ourselves harshly because we think that if we punish ourselves enough, then God won't have to. Have you ever dealt with a child that knew they had done something wrong and you confront them about it and they immediately fall to their knees and begin you know, throwing themselves at your mercy and crying and t talking about how bad they are. Oh, I'm you know, I've seen kids that do that. Some of my own do that. And they do it because they, they feel like if they can punish themselves fast enough and hard enough, maybe the punishment for me will be lighter. And it kind of works sometimes with a parent, but that's not how God works. He doesn't operate on that theory that we sometimes do, that if we punish ourselves, he won't have to. We develop entire systems of punishment for ourselves. Maybe if it's a small sin or something that no one else knows about just yet or something that isn't that big of a deal, maybe you'll feel bad about it for the rest of the day or maybe for a few hours and you'll beat yourself up about it for a little while. But if it's something major, maybe that'll last longer. We have a whole punitive system we apply to ourselves in how we see ourselves when we mess up. Others confuse guilt with condemnation. Again, we don't want to ignore wrongdoing. We don't want to ignore mistakes. We want to get better, and we don't want to ignore sin. But there is a difference, and we'll talk about it in a later lesson, a difference between guilt and condemnation. We have guilt. The condemnation is a different story. And we try to enact condemnation on ourselves. What this leads to eventually, if you're someone who beats yourself up a lot for mistakes, if you're someone who doesn't grasp the way God sees you and what he's done for you, and you continually punish yourself or allow others to punish you for the sin that you commit or the mistakes you make, what you will eventually do when you cut God out of that equation is you will give up. You will decide that there's no way to avoid messing up and there's no way to avoid the punishment and judgment of yourself or of others, and you will give up. I might as well just live however I want if it's only going to be failure and punishment when I try. Too many people decide that the answer to the blame game is to just live it up and do whatever you want. That's not the answer. 
The real answer, and as we go through this series, we're looking at the emotional and sometimes psychological ways that we view our significance and our purpose and our importance, and we want to juxtapose that to how God sees us and what he says about those aspects of our life. And when it comes to blame and punishment, God's answer is something called propitiation. Now, I used that word about, I don't know, three, four years ago in a sermon, and I had lunch with the Wilson family after that. And I was sitting right across the table from Ryan, and he said, don't ever use a word like propitiation in a sermon again. That's a Bible word. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. Well, I, I, with apologies to Ryan Wilson, I'm going to use propitiation again because it does mean something. I know, it's a Bible word. It's one of those words you've never heard used outside of a church building. I get it. That's okay. We're going to use it here because it does mean something. And I happen to like the word. It means that wrath is satisfied. We need to understand what it means to have a propitiation. When someone is unjustly wronged, it is the recompense for that wrong that avoids the punishment of the wrongdoer. It is something that takes a place of or is a substitute for punishment. God's nature is something we must consider when we address the concept of propitiation. We just started this morning uh, a new Sunday morning Bible study that we're live streaming, uh, and it'll probably take us through the end of the summer. But we're in the epistles of John. And so we actually considered uh, this passage that we're about to read this morning, and I want to read it again here, because it talks about the nature of God, who he is and what that means. Turn to 1 John chapter 1, if you will, and let's look at the nature of God, because we can't understand why propitiation works or what it is until we understand God and his nature. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. None. That's a very definite, very clear statement that is made by the writer in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the essence of God. He is light and there's no darkness in him. Light and dark are the most clear example of contrast that has ever existed. You cannot have darkness in light, and you cannot have light in darkness, or they cease to be what they are. So light and dark are often juxtaposed in Scripture to give us an example of something about God's nature, about the nature of man. What happens in darkness? Well, things are concealed, things are covered up, things are, are withheld. That's where bad things happen. That's where sin takes place. But more than that, that is where sin goes to hide in the darkness have you ever heard someone uh go out and talk about uh, went out to their car maybe after work one day went to the parking lot and the window was busted out and the stereo was gone and they go i just can't believe someone robbed me in broad daylight we're amazed by this and the reason is because we don't suspect bad things to happen when everything is illuminated and exposed that's a rare thing an odd thing but darkness is where we fear. Darkness is when we lock our doors. Darkness is when we make sure that we're protected and we don't go out or venture too far. 
The nature of darkness is to conceal and the nature of light is to reveal. It's not just that sin happens in the dark and doesn't happen in the light. We'll see that in a later verse. It's that in the darkness it is covered up and it hides. In the light it is exposed and revealed. Sin exists in both places. But in one place it's hidden and in one place it's revealed. Let's keep reading in 1 John chapter 1. God is light and in him is, uh, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But listen to this. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Wait a minute, there's sin. Why do we need to be cleansed from sin if we're walking in the light? Because walking in the light doesn't mean you don't have sin. Walking in the light means that it's exposed, it's confessed, it's uncovered, it's revealed. And that is where the cleansing can happen. If you hide your sin, run away from it and cover it up, you can't do anything about it. When you get it out in the open and you expose it to the light, to God's light, it's cleansed. The writer goes on there to talk about if you have sin, you confess it. Confess your sin and God will cleanse it, but you've got to be in the light. What does this tell us about the nature of God? There is a purity, an unadulterated quality to God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. None. He is the epitome of righteousness. He is the kind of righteousness that is so righteous, he can have nothing to do with unrighteousness. Now, I'm going to be very honest about what the Scripture reveals about the nature of God, and it might seem harsh. God doesn't want to have anything to do with sin. He doesn't want to have anything to do with sinners. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the unclean and unrighteous. That is a fact of God's nature. But it is balanced by his unending and unconditional love for us. And so we have a conflict. We have a problem. How can God have a relationship with those he loves while there is still this division that sin brings about? Now, we can go to a lot of places in Scripture to take a look at this. You can look at the prophet Hosea. The prophets are, are a little odd, okay? The minor prophets, they just sort of show up and they say something or something's written about them and they go away. They're very strange. It's a very strange time in the history of God's people. There are people in Egypt, in Babylon, in Jerusalem. They're all prophesying. They're all doing things. I mean, read Ezekiel. That one's just like science fiction. Read Hosea. And this is a guy who God called to make his life an object lesson. If God appeared to you, supposing that in and of itself didn't scramble your brain a little bit, if God appeared to you and said, I want you to go marry a prostitute, I would have some questions. If then she left me and he said, go get her again, you may have to pay for her, I would again have some hesitancy. But Hosea's life was an object lesson for God's love and how he tries to reconcile our unrighteousness with his love. That is what the story of our relationship with God is. How does he bring us into righteousness and union with him while we are still sinners and his nature is still true? There is no darkness in him. He cannot overlook our sin in and of itself. And so a propitiation is offered. 
We read in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning, and I'll read it again, beginning in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is a propitiation. And when Paul writes about it later, he says he made him to be a propitiation for us. He, that's where the word is used in Scripture. It's hard to find it anywhere else in the world. In common language, and what, but that's what it is. It's Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. He stood where we should have stood. He hung where we should have hung. He experienced what we should have experienced. The punishment and condemnation, the blame that was on us for our sin was taken by Jesus. He was our substitute. Go back to 1 John. You can go to chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. He says, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son <clears throat> into the world so that we might live through him. That's love, the essence of love that God gave Jesus for us. He made him to be a propitiation. He made him to be a substitute. He made him to be the payment for the wrongdoing. He used Christ and his righteousness and his death to stand in our place so that we don't have to be blamed anymore. Recognizing your sin is important. That's what it means to walk in the light, be exposed, put it in the open, confess it, acknowledge it. Absolutely. Even acknowledging it in one another is important to encouraging and helping one another along in this journey of life. But the acknowledgement and recognition of sin and the confession of sin does not require the blame, punishment, and condemnation of sin, certainly not between brethren and certainly not to ourselves. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the propitiation. He was the answer, and there is no condemnation. There may be guilt, but there is no condemnation. Another story we can go to to illustrate this is the story of Jesus encountering the adulterous woman. You remember that story? Jesus is there in town, he's teaching, he's talking, and these teachers, these men, they come along, and then they're the esteemed, they're the religious elite, and they really would like to get rid of Jesus, but he's gaining momentum, he's gaining popularity. So they drag this woman out in the street and throw her there. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now. A little bit about that the very act of adultery means what it says it means they drug her out there perhaps straight out of bed this would have been incredibly shameful notice the man is nowhere to be found and he's engaging in this as well but that was the nature of the culture you see women didn't have standing women were their value was based on having a husband having someone to take care of them if he died you got to call your brother-in-law and see if he'll take you. Which is kind of scary to think about in our day and age. And if he wasn't available, you better hope you have a kid who can take care of you. 
not a baby goat, like a child. You, you got to have one that will take care of you. And if you don't have that, you're on your own. And many women had to turn to prostitution. It's shameful today because it's illegal, because it's kind of a despicable kind of profession. It was disgraceful then because it meant you had no one to take care of you. Understand that. It wasn't shameful for the, from the legal standpoint. It was shameful because it meant you didn't have anyone to take care of you. And women wore clothes that stated their relationship status. We have Facebook now. I can remember, this is, I know, I know you younger people, that's an old person social media. When I was in college, Facebook was invented. And we had relationship status. And that was a big deal because we could see when someone started dating, oh, they're in a relationship. And then if they had a fight, it's complicated. And then the next day, they're single again. So this was a big deal. This was an outward expression of a relationship. They had that in Jesus' time. You wore the clothes of someone who was not married. You wore the clothes of someone who was married. You wore widow's clothes, or you wore the clothes of a prostitute. Your clothes, your clothing, expressed the status of your relationship. So this woman was caught in adultery. She may very well have been a prostitute. She may very well have not had a man to take care of her, and she was using trading on her body to be cared for, or maybe she just had a boyfriend. Whatever the reason is, there was shame in the act, shame in being brought forth. And the shame is, is, is exacerbated by the fact that these people were using her too. They were using her to try and trap Jesus, logically. They say to Jesus, what should be done? The law says we stone her and put her to death. What should we do? Now, Jesus says, yeah, absolutely. You should follow the law and stone her. Well, now he's just turned off everybody that's following him because his message of love and grace has completely gone away. He has just authorized the execution of a woman. If he says, absolutely not, you shouldn't do that, well, he's violating the law, he's blaspheming the law, and now they have grounds to charge him. So Jesus, in his wisdom, says, okay, fine. Whichever one of you has no sin, start throwing. And one at a time, starting with the eldest, which I think is interesting, maybe some wisdom was present, starting with the older men, all the way down to the younger, they set their stones down, they walked away. They recognized the point Jesus was making was that sin is sin, violating the law is violating the law, and if you want to stone her for her violation of the law, you need to think about your violation of the law. You need to think about your own condemnation. The most important part of the story is what comes next. I think we emphasize the, you know, he without sin cast the first stone. Look at, what Look at the conversation after that, though, where Jesus says to her, hey, where did all those people go that were condemning you? And she says, they've all gone away. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He didn't say, great, get your life together and come back and see me, and then I'll love you. He didn't say, fix all the problems get rid of all the sin, and then you can have a relationship with me. No, he said, I don't condemn you either. Now go change your life. We are called to change our life 
by meeting Jesus and letting him transform us, not by meeting the prerequisites to be worthy of Christ. Why should we beat ourselves up? Why do we beat up others? Why do we play the blame game when Jesus himself looks at the greatest sinner you know, in front of him and says, I don't condemn you. Now, go and live differently. Final verse, and then we'll close. It's from Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Actually, let's back up to verse 6. This, this chapter is really a turning point in this letter, or in this sermon, or this book, because Paul talks about having peace with God through Christ. In the beginning of verse 6, he says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. We all have sin in our life. We all have shortcomings. We all will make mistakes. We will all fail. If we lay our significance in, the, in those things, we will let ourselves down and we will have no choice but to beat ourselves up into oblivion and to beat one another up into oblivion, demanding perfection when we ourselves cannot achieve it. That is a road to nowhere. That is a cruel taskmaster. That is not what God envisions for you. Put your sin into the light. Let it be exposed before God and do so with the confidence and understanding that he is there to provide that propitiation. Not blame, not condemnation, but a substitution. That's how much he loves you. He didn't wait till you were good enough to send Jesus. He did it in the midst of your ugly, filthy, sinful life. He didn't wait on you to be good enough to pick you up out of the street and send you on your way when you were drugged before him. He said, I don't condemn you. I'm willing to give my son for you. I'm willing to give my life for you. To stand in your place. Just as you are right now. And when you leave from that transformation, you'll live differently. You will live in the light. You will live in fellowship with him. We will live in fellowship with one another. That's what that letter of John says. That that's the benefit of walking the light. We get to have this. We get to have this union, this fellowship with one another that is made possible through Jesus. Let's go from here today and give ourselves a break. Not because we're trying to be lax towards sin or to ignore things that are right or wrong, but because we want to see one another and see ourselves the way God does. People worthy of the ultimate sacrifice. If you live like someone for whom Jesus Christ died, you will live differently. And you will think differently about your own shortcomings. 
and you will have a much more significant life and do much more good for those around you. If you need help in this journey, if you need assistance or prayers or someone to walk with you and talk with you, that's what this body is for. That's what this fellowship is for. Let's do that for one another as Jonathan comes and leads us in a final song. See what God.